darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with a great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, keep in mind, as we go through this message, the very next chapter is the story of Hagar, and Abram going in unto Hagar and having a child with her. I think that's somewhat significant as you think about the promises here and what Abram did not long after that. Not exactly sure how much longer than when this had happened. Also notice that chapter 15 follows the story that we looked at where Abram went and rescued Lot and and brought back all those goods and he met Melchizedek and gave a tithe and had fought against those kings that had taken uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot with them. So let's take a look at some things here in this passage. First of all, you'll notice that it says in verse 1, fear not. And I'm not exactly sure what Abram was fearing at this point. But he tells him, he says, I am thy shield. And he also says, I am thy exceeding great reward. Now, when we think about not fearing, uh, when... Maybe when you have fear in your life, something that you're concerned about, something you're afraid of, something that you are uh, really concerned, God has promises for those times. And so I'm not exactly sure what Abram was fearing here, but God didn't show up and say, well, hey, just forget about that, and that was the end of it. He said, no, I am the one that you need to look to, and here are some promises to go with it. And so God gave him these promises. Now, notice that when we think about the shield and the reward, like I mentioned, Abram had just returned from this battle. And I would assume in this battle that he would have used a shield. And also, if you remember, he took no, nothing from the spoil. He took no reward at all. However, he gave a tithe, but he took no reward. So in that setting... When he had had that battle, he would have used a shield, and he would have taken no reward. And so he was familiar with these things. But God says to him, look, I am your shield, and I am your reward, and you can trust in me. As we think about a shield, a shield is for protection. And I don't know if you look at God at all for protection. Uh, I hope you do. Now, that doesn't mean that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. It doesn't mean that you will never be faced with things that are uh, challenging, difficult, or whatever. But in those things, I think we need to remember that God is our protection. 
I might ask you a question. What do you look for for protection? I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but over the last few months, and especially the last couple of weeks with all the riots and so forth going on, and um, in some cases police not necessarily defending their territories and so forth in this country, uh, guns are selling out rather rapidly. They're moving off the shelves. People are lined up around the blocks. I don't know if they're social distancing or not, but they are lined up to buy their guns. Why? They're looking for protection. They're looking for something to protect them. They're looking for a shield, if you will. Maybe not a shield. A shield is more defensive. A gun is more offensive, but it could probably be used a little bit both ways. What do you look for for your protection? I want us to go through a little journey through some scriptures, especially in Psalms, and there are many more. But turn with me, first of all, to Psalms chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 3. And I want to just, we'll go through some verses here. And to think about uh, some of the things that go with the idea of God being our shield, our protector. So in Psalms chapter 3, 3, it says, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. So if your head is hanging down this morning and you're discouraged and you're frustrated or you're scared or whatever it is, God is your shield and he'll lift up your head. He'll get things back into perspective for you. He'll help you out in that. Let's take a look at chapter 5, verse 12. It says, For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor. Wilt thou compass him as with a shield? He will protect the righteous. He will look out for them. In chapter 18 and verse 35, it says, Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, that my feet did not slip. Salvation alone is a shield and a protector. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, if you have not received God's salvation, you don't have his protection. Now, I'm not saying God would never protect you from something. I could give you personal stories of when God, when I believe God protected me from actually being killed before when I was not living for the Lord. Uh, He may protect you in some ways, but he is not a protector in the sense of when you are saved, when you are living, when you are counted as righteous in his eyes, there is a completely different protection for you and a different shield. Chapter 27, or I'm sorry, 28 verse 7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart greatly rejoices with my song. Will I praise him? He goes on and talks about God's strength. In chapter 33, verse 20, He says, our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. In going over to chapter 84, we'll look at verses 9 through 11 there. Behold, our God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a, day in the courts is, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand, and I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God 
than to dwell in a tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. In Psalm 91, probably a page over or so in your Bible, in verse 4 it says, He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shall thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. I'd like to stop and think about that one for just a little bit. You may sometimes be fearful, maybe how to answer someone, how to respond, how to, maybe even in this, in this time of all kinds of things being said and things being talked about, and, and sometimes you're like, oh, what do I say? What? Stick with the truth. Go with truth. Truth is a shield. It's a protector. When you move away from truth and start giving other ideas, you can get in trouble in a hurry. Truth is a shield and a protector. For you. In Psalm 115, verses 9 to 11. And incidentally, there are more places in the Psalms and in the Scriptures that give some of these same ideas. But in Psalm 115, starting at verse 9, it says, O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, that should be us. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield or their protector. Jumping over to one and toward the end of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 30. In verse 5 it says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Again, I ask you this morning, where is your trust? When God came to Abram back there, he said, fear not. I am your shield. Put your trust in me. Believe in me. Put your trust in me if you want that kind of protection. And then I believe there's a passage that uh, maybe you thought about when you thought about a shield I think it's maybe the only time, I'm not positive, but I think it may be the only time that word shield is used in the uh, New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 6, a familiar passage there, verse 16, where it says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you should be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. The shield of faith. And I'm not sure exactly what... um, you know, as Paul was probably looking at that Roman soldier that had on all that apparel that you see in Ephesians 5. But when God inspired him to write that, I wonder if he thought back of this passage in Genesis when God told Abram, I am thy shield. And we know that Abram had faith in God. And so as he looked at this, he said, here, the shield of faith. Be like Abram, your father. Now, he also told him that he is his exceeding great reward. I don't know exactly what you uh, look for in this life, if you're looking for some rewards here. I think we all kind of want some rewards. Uh, Let me give you some examples. How many of you go to work for someone? And don't expect a reward. It's called a paycheck. 
probably expect one of those rewards at the end of the week or two weeks or however often you get paid. You probably kind of expect that. You probably kind of need that. Some of you that are self-employed, when you work for do a job for someone, generally, unless you're being benevolent and you're just you're helping someone out for some reason, and, and that's great. I've I've received that, and I've tried to do that on occasion where. Maybe someone does something for you and they don't receive a reward, but their reward, if they're doing it for the right reasons, is probably as great as as maybe a paycheck might be. But generally, when we do work for someone, we expect a reward. Most of you that went through school and graduated kind of expected a reward, called a diploma. If you... uh, take other kind of schooling classes, whatever it may be. Farmers go through certain classes for pesticide and insecticide application and so forth, and they get a paper that says something about it. Uh, You may have a CDL license. You you might say as a reward or as a payment for something you invested. However, when it comes to true rewards, which ones are really important? The ones we receive here? or the ones that God gives us as eternal rewards. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 and 6. And we're just going to look at a few of these here as we go through, as we think about God giving us reward or being a reward for us. It actually says um, back there in Genesis that I am, he says, uh, he says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I am thy reward, he tells Abram. Let's see what Matthew 5 says here as Jesus is teaching. He says in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Well, we need to jump back to verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say, All men are evil against you falsely for my sake. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? But he says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Over in uh, chapter, or in verse 46 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore, if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Yeah, what reward do you have? We're looking for a heavenly reward. In, verse, in chapter 6, uh, when Jesus is teaching about giving and alms, he said, Take heed that you do not your alms before men, to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward. And down in verse 2, he says, they have their reward when they do those kinds of things. But in verse 4, it says, uh, verse 3 and 4, But when thou doest thine alms, let the, not the left hand know what the right hand doeth. Let thine alms be done in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. In verse 5, it says, when thou prayest, it says, don't be like the hypocrites. Again, he says, they have their reward. But in verse 6, it says, God will give us a reward. Over in verse uh, 16 and 17, when Jesus is talking about fasting, he says, don't disfigure yourselves and, and look all like you, you're just so pitiful because you're not eating and you're, not, you're fasting and so forth. Uh, don't, don't try to do that just to get the attention of men. So don't do that. He says, they have their reward. When you fast, do it unto the Lord, and he will reward you. Which is better, the rewards that we receive from men, 
the praise. You'll notice here in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, a lot of it has to do with either with praise that we get here or rewards that God gives us. And I know sometimes you may do some things for the Lord. Maybe you do things in the church. Maybe you do things for a brother or sister or whatever. And, and you're like, what? I don't even get any recognition for this. I've been doing this. And I don't get any recognition. Well, if you get your recognition, your rewards, and everybody puts you up on a pedestal here, what's the Lord think about it? The Lord would prefer to give you eternal rewards. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. He says, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. I think that's the kind of rewards we want. And then if we think about our final rewards, turn to the last chapter of the Bible. In chapter, in, in Revelation 22, verse 12. <clears throat> and Jesus here speaking. He says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to as his work shall be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I would like to encourage us this morning to focus on eternal rewards. Now, God did give Abram some earthly rewards. He told him he's going to, his, his, his family will inherit this land. He's going to have a lot of children that are uh, multiplied upon the face of the earth beyond what could be numbered. But yet, I believe Abram has received an eternal reward beyond anything that he even received here. Not an earthly reward at all. Um, Our protection is God and our reward is from God. Now let's go back to our passage in Genesis And after God tells him this, Abram reminds God of something, you might say, in verse 2. After after God tells him, I am thy shield, thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And then he talks about this Eliezer of Damascus. Now, as I understand it, uh, and notice he says here, what? He doesn't say who. He's talking about going childless, but he said, what are you going to give me that I know this? He doesn't say who. He says what? He was looking for something, something concrete that he could know that God was going to fulfill these promises that God had made to him even earlier. And you may have things in your own life, promises that you believe God has made to you through his word, and you're like, I just, I don't understand it. Why is this happening in my life if God has promised this? What's going on? But God reminds him then of some things, but he, he doesn't ask necessarily what or, or who, he asks what. And then uh, he talks about this Eliezer. This was a practice in the, in the 
that part of the world at that time, that if you had no heirs in your own family, but you had uh, maybe servants, slaves, whoever, that you could choose one of them, and they would then be the heir of, your, of all that you had that would be passed on. And so he says, what about this Eliezer from Damascus? And God says, no, no, that's, it's somebody that's going to come from you uh, that is going to be the heir, not, not this person. So God reminds Abram, even though Abram was trying to remind God of something, God reminded Abram. And Abram believes, and yet he still kind of questions some things, you'll see, but he believes. And notice in verse 6, you can see that he still questions in verse 8. He says, and he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? I want you to turn with me again to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 4. Because in verse 6 here he says, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. How does that apply to us today? Does it apply? Turn to Romans chapter 4. And I know I've preached on justification before. Some of you may have forgotten. Some of you may have not been here. And if you're like me, you forget things, and that's okay. But I want to remind you this morning what justification is. Justification is being made right in God's eyes. It's being made just. If you go into the Hebrew, and even in the Greek, you'll see a couple of different word families. And when it comes over into English, uh, the word family gets divided off into two different word families in English. One of them is what we would call the the just word family. Such word is justified or uh, someone is just or someone is unjust. Uh, And you also have uh, the right family, which someone is right or someone is righteous or someone is unrighteous. But you go back to the Greek and you're coming out of the same words. And so when when you look in the New Testament and and it says that we have been justified, it means we have been made right in God's eyes. And and I think that, I I think sometimes we, we overlook the importance of that. That God looks at us as being right or righteous because of what? Well, let's look. Because if you notice back there in Genesis, it says that Abram believed God and what? It was counted to him for righteousness. That's where he found his righteousness. And I've got news for you this morning. If, if Abram needed to be justified and made right, there's none of us here that think that can slide in on somehow without God's provision for righteousness. That's, it's just not going to happen. got news for you. You're not going to get there on your own righteousness. <clears throat> so in, in uh, Romans chapter 4, in verse 2 it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. What, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And when it was says counted, if you look in these passages, you'll see the words like counted, imputed, and uh, so forth. And they're all the same Greek word. And it basically means put upon your account that, you, that Abram was considered righteous. You go over to verse 22 of chapter 4. And we could spend a lot of time in this passage. Uh, but 
Notice in verse 21 it says, For being fully persuaded that what he had promised, that's God, he was able also to perform. Think about that now with the passage we just looked at. And therefore it was imputed to him, or reckoned, or counted for righteousness. So Abraham believed God, he had faith, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, let's not forget that James then helps us fully understand this whole thing. Because James says, you can say you believe, but if there's no action, that's not going to justify anyone either. And so, there has to be action that shows that we actually have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, you can have all the action you want. Abraham could have had all the action he wanted. But if he would have never believed God, what God said was going to happen, was going to happen. If he wouldn't have believed that, he would not have been justified in God's eyes. It's the same way for us. God has made a provision for us to be saved. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way to be saved. Now, when we believe and we place our faith in God's provision for salvation... We are seen as righteous in God's eyes, but that kind of faith produces action. And if there is no change of life, if there's no change of heart, if there's no change of anything else, then basically what you're saying is, yeah, I believe it, but then nothing changes. And I say, no, you really don't believe it. You may read it, yep, yep, looks right to me, but it really hasn't hit where it needs to hit. And that is that you believe it with a faith that changes how you view God, how you view yourself, how you view salvation, and how you view your own righteousness, and how you view the righteousness that God gives you. Okay, we could spend a lot of time on justification. Let's go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 15 again, I want us to notice something that takes place. And that is God's covenant that we see through verses 9 on down through Chapter 17. What in the world is going on here? Well, it says that uh, Abraham asked God for something. And instead of God showing him some kind of a sign, other than he has told him before a number of times, uh, look at the sand, look at the stars, so forth. Instead of that, he makes a covenant. And this covenant is very interesting. He starts out by telling him to take some animals and divide these animals up. And here's what was happening. And this was a custom of that time. So Abraham knew and recognized what was going on. So they would take an animal and they would basically split it down the middle. It says they divided it. They they cut it out in half. Kind of gross when you think about it, but that's what they did. And then they would lay the pieces on one side and the other. And you might picture this aisle down through the center here. They took this heifer of three years old and these other animals, except the birds, they didn't divide, but they, they took them and they divided them. They had one half here, one half here, and they put this path down through the middle, and the blood was probably running out on the ground. And what they would do back then is then they would, the, the people that were going, that were making this contract or this covenant together They would walk down between those animals and they would basically say, and some commentators even say that those that would walk down between would actually do it either holding hands or something that that 
they walked through there, and the idea was if one of us, if either one of us break this covenant, may what happened to these animals come upon our own heads. In other words, the animals were divided, they were killed, they were cut apart. If I break this covenant, may the same thing happen to me. It's pretty serious covenant stuff, isn't it? <clears throat> Today we sign contracts, and contracts are written by attorneys generally, and then they're scrutinized by attorneys to see if you can get out of the contract. And if you don't read all the fine print, you probably don't even know what you've signed. But I think walking between those animals was pretty clear. There wasn't a lot of fine print. Here we go. This is what we're agreeing on. And here we go. We walk through here. And so God told Abram to do that. Now, I want to show you how serious this is. There's a passage in Jeremiah. Turn there with me quickly to Jeremiah chapter 34. And this particular passage, from what I understand, they were, the city of Jerusalem had been besieged and uh, somebody's having what we might call somewhat of a false repentance. These people were trying to get God's attention and get his goodwill. And so they, they, uh, they had not given their, their Hebrew servants and slaves release every seven years like they were supposed to or whatever and so here they were and so they promised God okay we get us out of this fix we're going to do this we're going to let everybody go and we're going to do what the, the law teaches and so forth and then when you get to chapter or to verse 17 notice what happens because they changed their mind verse 17 of Jeremiah 34 says therefore thus saith the Lord ye have not hearkened unto me and in proclaiming liberty every one to his brother and every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, saith the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. And I will make you to be, the, be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me. Notice now, when they cut the calves in twain and pass between the parts thereof. You see that? They're still practicing this. They had made that kind of covenant. The princes of Judah and the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests, and all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life, and their dead bodies shall be for meat unto the fowls of the heaven and to the beasts of the earth. Here we see that practiced. And we see the fact that they went back on their word. And God said, no, 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 no. You made a covenant. You passed through those calves. And because of that, I'm going to bring sword upon you. And you will be food for the fowls of the air, just like those animals were. So it was a serious thing. He understood that. It was a custom that he would have understood. It may have looked a little something like this some artist idea of what it looked like. You'll notice there that the birds tried to come down and get to these animals. And Abe says in verse 11 that uh, Abram drove them away. He spent time keeping the fowls away. And I might just have you notice, some time, you know, we can read this passage in a short period of time. 
and almost preach a message on it in a short period of time. But you'll notice that it was probably at least a two-day thing here. Because if you'll notice back in verse 5, he says, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said, So shall thy seed be. If you go out here right now and look toward the heaven, you're not going to be able to see the stars and decide if you can number them or not. You have to do that at night. But this is happening during the day. And so apparently this little story went on for a period of time. Starting one day, one evening or sometime, going into the night. Or, and then it got to be day and God told him what to do. And he goes about getting these animals around and doing all this work. And then... That evening, it begins to get dark again. And notice in verse 12, it says, um, And when the sun was going down, now over in verse 17, it says, When the sun went down. So the sun was just going down at this point, sometime in the evening. Uh, Apparently, it was not completely dark yet at this point. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. I I can't imagine quite what that was like. Um, I don't know. <clears throat> Here he is. He's it's the sun's going down. It's evening, and all of a sudden, just the Bible describes that as a horror of great darkness came upon him. And maybe maybe sometimes in your own life, it's at a time when. Things are tough, and and sometimes you feel like that. A horror of great darkness comes upon you. But when that happened, God spoke to Abram. And he says, And Abram um, fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. In verse 13, And he said unto Abram, and here he gives him some promises. He says, Um, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they will serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. And in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What's interesting, when they came back, out of Egypt, God took care of the Amorites. Now, what's interesting, if you look forward even to Solomon's time, it looks like there were still some around, and Solomon took them as slaves, I believe. But for the most part, the nation was destroyed. It was a great nation, uh, but God destroyed it. And I thought about that with I, I thought about that with what we've seen even in our own country, our own nation, in the last number of years now. And seemingly getting worse every month. We think, well, God, when, what's going to happen? When are you going to judge this nation? What's going on? But God has a time appointed for each nation. And God said at the, 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 the time of the Amorites, the, the, God's wrath is not there yet. It's not yet full. But there came a time... And I kind of believe that actually it came about 40 years before it actually happened. But because of the children of Israel 
not believing the spies and needing to stay in the wilderness for 40 years, it gave the Amorites a little more time. <clears throat> so he says the time is not yet full. I'd like to look at these promises quickly. It says his descendants will live in another land. They will serve in that land, and we see all these things happen in Egypt. They will be afflicted in the last 400 years. Um, they will leave with a great substance. God will judge that nation. Abraham will not see this in his life, and Abraham will live to be a good old age. Now let's look at this covenant that was made. It came to pass, in verse 17 it says, that it says, When the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt, unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. What in the world? A smoking, a smoking pot and a flaming torch basically passed through. Remember I said that those that were making a covenant would both pass through those pieces. Abram didn't pass through the pieces. God made this covenant, in a sense, with himself. Remember that God is um, considered in the Bible. You'll see it talks in here. It mentions a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. But you'll notice that um, when the children of Israel being led through the wilderness and so forth, there was a pillar of fire. The Bible says uh, that we will be baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire is what the promise was to his apostles, the early church there. The Bible talks in the end times about an unquenchable fire. And often smoke has to do with judgment, the smoke rising up forever. <clears throat> fire is a wonderful thing. It gives light, it gives warmth, it gives heat, but it can also destroy. But in this case, God himself went through there. Abram was not involved. Now, does that mean that Abram had no part at all in anything ever happening that should? No, if you look over in chapter 17, you'll see that circumcision is given a sign as a covenant. But you'll notice if you glance at 17, I want to just jump through some verses there and show you something. It says in verse 4, it says, Behold, my covenant is with thee. Verse 17, it says, Establish my covenant. In verse 9, it says, Thou shalt keep my covenant. In verse 10, this is my covenant. This is God talking, not Abram. In verse 13, it says, again, my covenant shall be. In verse 14, my covenant. In verse 21, but my covenant will I establish with Isaac, with Sarah, shall, be, shall bear unto thee, and so forth. God makes his covenant with himself, and yet Abram has things that God asks him to do. Of course. But this covenant is with himself. Turn with me over to chapter 22. I want to look at verse 16. And this is after Abraham is, is commanded to offer Isaac. 
It says in verse 15, An angel of the Lord called unto Abram out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn with the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. Let's go now to Hebrews chapter 6. We'll see this referenced. In Hebrews chapter 6, I'll read verses 10 through 20. And I'm reading this, a number of verses here, so you recognize that the writer of Hebrews, by inspiration, is, is showing that God has promises for us. God has certain things that he establishes with his church and his believers. And we could read much more here, but let's just start at verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them that through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience. For when God made promise to Abraham, notice here, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, that's Abram, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for the confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherefore, God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Immutability of his counsel means his unchanging word. God's word didn't change then. God's word isn't changing now. God's word will never change. In verse 18, that by two immutable or unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. There is a hope set before us. Verse 19, which hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entered in, uh, into that within the veil, that's Christ, whether the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> so this covenant was directly connected to the coming Messiah. God's covenant with Abram and the fact that his children were going to inherit that land and the blessing was going to go down through his seed had a direct connection with the Messiah and it wasn't dependent upon man's actions, not that part of it. And it was also related to his second coming. Had he not come the first time, he wouldn't come the second time. And what can we learn from that? Well, first of all, God has established certain promises and covenants that are not dependent upon men. If you would have looked at world, the world situation, let's say in about the year 1750, or maybe 1800, maybe even 1850, most people would have said, Israel, the Jews, will never go back to their land. A lot of people said that. It's over, it's done, they won't go back. Clear back here at the time of Abram, God said, I, I, this land, 
I'm giving it to you. And because it was not dependent on some person, it was God walking through that himself, making a covenant with himself for Abram and his descendants. Nothing, it wasn't going to change. Now, did the children of Israel lose that land for a period of time? Of course they did. We know history. We know what happened. We can see it in the Old Testament. We can see it um, in AD 70. We can see those things that have happened. But, we, but no man is going to change the covenant that God made with himself there. God's ask for patient endurance. I don't know if you noticed that or not. If I'd have been Abraham, I would have run out of patience myself. And I think he did a few times. You can see that. But God continued to work with him. And God is our hope, our light, and we can trust in him just as Abram did. You can see it. Today, God's promise with the land come true. People are coming back. And there are more people going back. And more of them are encouraged to go back right now. And we uh, may be at times impatient. Um, And if we are, and we get ahead of God, it can have long-lasting consequences. God asks us for patient endurance. He said that of Abram. That's why he said if you go just to the next chapter in Genesis, you see the story of Hagar. And I talked about this a little bit briefly in an earlier message. Do you think that decision has had any lasting impacts upon the world and upon others? It has. God asked for patient endurance because he is the one who is our shield. And he is the one who is our protector. He is our great reward if we patiently wait and endure on him and if we place our faith in him. And God wants to establish those covenants that with us. But he has already established this covenant, and it cannot be broken. And that is that those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his shed blood and resurrection have salvation in him. Now, he asks for obedience. He does. He asks for patience. He asks for obedience. He asks for us to serve him. But the point is, just as Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him for righteousness, God has made that same provision for us. Now, when I say God made that covenant, and it stands, that doesn't mean that you automatically get it without placing your faith in him. That's not the point. That's not what I'm saying. The fact is, that is a truth that stands. And we can place our faith in that because God has said, this is the way it is. And God is not going to change. He's not going to change that. He has established that. And so this morning, you can put your faith and trust in the fact that Jesus Christ is your reward. Jesus Christ is your shield. Jesus Christ is your salvation. And God will reward your faith in him just like he did with Abraham when he said that his faith was counted unto him for righteousness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the lessons we can see in scripture. Thank you, God, that there are some things that you have established with mankind 
that are not dependent upon us because we would mess it up if it were.